Hear now God's holy word from 1 Kings chapter 7 as we continue our study in the life and times of Elijah. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as Yahweh God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of Yahweh came to him saying, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you will drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of Yahweh, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the way you've preserved it and delivered it to us. We pray that we would be faithful students of it today. So grant us your spirit that we might hear it clearly, that we might understand it. Deliver us from every distraction, from every anxiety and worry. Deliver me from all error as I work to display this word before your people today. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Nothing ever fixes itself. It's impossible. Nothing fixes itself. But when I was a kid, I used to believe the opposite. Whenever I broke something, I thought that if you kind of put it back together and hide it and pray really hard, the molecules would fuse themselves back together and things would get fixed. One notable time that this happened, I was scuffling in the floor with my sister. I was probably six and she was four or five or I was seven. It was a young, young child time. And I uh, were scuffling and I sent her sailing into my mother's china cabinet and breaking a very precious sentimental uh, 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 platter, a china platter that she was attached to and just, just broke it. And I, of course, panicked and thought, you know what, if I wrap it in a towel and piece it back together and hide it in a drawer, number one, she may forget about it. She may never remember that she owned such a thing. And, and then find it four years later and say, oh, what happened? I don't know what happened. I, that, uh. And then maybe I had the crazy idea that if I prayed hard enough, because I was a good boy and the Lord loves good boys, and I pray hard enough that the broken pieces would fuse themselves together and that uh, a mirac uh, miraculous uh, repair would happen. Uh, and I was desperately hoping for that. Of course, neither plan worked when my mother walked in to the dining room and saw her, uh, her, her platter missing. She wondered where it was. It took about two minutes to uh, figure out what had happened. And of course, it didn't fix itself. Uh, the, the thing did not fix itself at all. And I had to explain why it was wrapped up in a towel in a drawer. Things don't fix themselves, not plates, not problems, not relationships, not conflicts. In order for something to be fixed, in order for it to be repaired, we have to initiate repair. We have to act. We have to engage. And that seems like a no-brainer. I mean, that seems like something that you just don't have to say. Of course, things don't fix themselves. But the fact is that very few people have the stomach to confront problems and would rather put up with things than address them biblically. We think that problems might just fix themselves. It'll just work itself out. Just give it enough time and it'll just iron itself out. Um, and that, that just doesn't work that way. Occasionally, we'll come across a troublemaker in our family or friends or our business associates, someone who makes life difficult for other people. 
And rather than facing the person head on and addressing them, we often prefer the passive aggressive route. You know, we leave them little notes or we talk bad about them to other people. A lot of insinuation and innuendo to undermine the other person. If you've worked uh, anywhere with a large group of people, you've probably had the chewing out by the boss. There's one person who has a specific problem, but the boss doesn't wanna deal with that person directly. And so they get everybody into the conference room and they chew everybody out over the thing that everybody knows that one person is doing, and yet we don't confront that person directly. We instead go the, the passive route but things will never change without directly confronting the problem. Things will only ever get worse because things don't fix themselves. Confrontation jumpstarts resolution. Conflict produces results. Today is the great anniversary of a wonderful conflict that was initiated by Martin Luther and the uh, uh, 95 Theses. He opposed the idolatry and the superstition and the deep errors of Rome in, uh, in kicking off the Protestant Reformation. There was something that needed to be confronted. Conflict needed to be brought to that situation. It was never going to fix itself on its own. And in our study of what's going on in Israel in the middle of 1 Kings, as we saw last time in our study, the kingdom of Israel under King Ahab is rampant with idolatry. That is the problem that needs to be addressed. We met King Ahab, who marries Jezebel, the Baal-worshipping Sidonian princess. He, then following his wife's wishes, establishes Baal worship as the religion of the land. He pushes out whatever remnant of Yahweh worship remained in Israel. Remember, as we saw last time, Baal worship is simply the worship of nature, the belief that the world runs itself through impersonal forces. There's a way to manipulate nature to get what you want out of it, but there's not a loving creator God who controls all things, not in Baalism. And so Ahab makes that the state-supported religion. And not only that, Ahab allowed the city of Jericho to be rebuilt, which had lain in ruins for 500 years as a testimony. This is what happens to idolaters. This is what happened to the former inhabitants of the land. And if you want to act like them and worship like them and live like them, this is what's going to happen to you. And Joshua pronounced a curse on that city, lest they rebuild it. But now they are returning the land to the state that it was in before Joshua came through. They're reviving the old heathen culture of Canaan in the time of Ahab. Now, we know these days are evil because we're reading it from a distance and we've got the perspective of history and we know what's going on. But if you were living it in the land at that time, and if you weren't real aware of what was going on around you, you might not have thought that things were that bad. At least Ahab brought stability. He reigned for 22 years. And before him, there was this quick succession of kings, of assassinations. There was one king who ruled for only seven days. And then we get Ahab and finally we get stability. And not only do we have stability, but he's worked out a treaty with Tyre and Sidon. So now that's good for our economy. We're building cities. I know we're building Jericho, but at least we're building cities. Who cares what Ahab worships? Who cares who he, who he pronounces his allegiance to? We have prosperity. We are building back better. This is all looking very good. But the reality is this is not a good time. This is a time of crisis because the idolaters are in command. 
I don't care how good the economy is going, I don't care what you're building, if idolaters are in control, if they're at the helm, if the idolaters have the steering wheel, you are headed for destruction. You are never, ever, 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 ever gonna get anything but corruption out of idolatry. You're not gonna get life, you're not gonna get blessing, you're not gonna get sustained glory apart from obedience to Yahweh. And so for things to turn around in Israel, they must drop their idolatry, they, their wickedness must be challenged. There must be confrontation because it is not going to fix itself. They need a solution from the outside. And that's exactly what God sends through the prophet Elijah. Elijah bursts on the scene from nowhere. He just shows up. We don't get a lot of background on him. He's called a Tishbite. Now that could mean that he's from the town of Tishbe, which was a town up in Galilee, or the word Tishbite could be translated stranger. It could be either or it could be both. We're told that he lived among the people of Gilead. Now we know where that is. We know where Gilead is. It's in the mountainous region on the eastern side of the Jordan River. If you remember your Bible map when the tribes were distributed throughout the land, uh, there were tribes on the eastern side of the river that always had to fight for recognition and had to fight to be remembered, who felt left out of things. Uh, they fought for inclusion. So suffice it to say, Elijah, if he's coming from across the river, he's an outsider. He's a stranger from the other side of the river. He's not a priest. He's not a royal. He's coming from the outside. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God, uh, which is to say Baal isn't. Baal isn't my God, Yahweh is my God. And so Elijah bursts on the scene and he confronts wicked King Ahab with this statement. As Yahweh God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, preachers and commentators like to paint the picture that Elijah stormed into Ahab's palace and pronounced this uh, statement but the Bible doesn't say where he said this or when he said it. He might have very well done that. We don't know. He could have shouted it at the king as the king was passing in his royal caravan when the king was being paraded through the city. He could have stood in the square of the city or in the gates of the city and shouted it toward the palace. Or he could have waited for that perfect, vulnerable moment at a public event and just shouted this when there was a pause in the conversation. We don't know. All we read is he says it. He makes this pronouncement. What is so profound about this short message is that it directly opposes Baalist doctrine. It opposes Baalism. Elijah is gonna show who's in charge. It's Yahweh who controls the rain, not Baal. And once the drought becomes a reality, the prophets of Baal are gonna do everything they can to try to stimulate nature, to cry out to the clouds and the rain, but they're not gonna listen and it's not gonna work and the people of Israel are gonna be reminded of who is really running the universe, who is running creation. They're also gonna be reminded of what the Lord told them back in Deuteronomy through his servant Moses. Moses said this, Moses said, take heed to yourselves lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Okay, check, we're there, we're doing that right now. We're serving other gods and worshiping them. 
lest Yahweh's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which God is giving you, Yahweh is giving you. Now, so what Elijah's doing by pronouncing that there's not gonna be any dew or rain, he's just doing Bible exegesis. He's just saying what Moses said. I mean, this is a great prophetic, timely word, but it's not like it's original with, with Elijah. He is saying what Moses said. And they had all kinds of fair warning in God's word that if they wanted to follow false gods, then Yahweh will shut up the heavens and he will stop the rain. If you want a drought, I've got the perfect formula for a drought. Pray to Baal, worship Baal, and you'll get a drought and you'll get a famine. You'll see, and then, and then try to call on them when you're thirsty, and try to call on them when your crops are failing, and when your animals are dying. Uh, see if the false gods answer you. So the message of Elijah was not a surprise. It shouldn't have been a surprise. Israel has given themselves over to full-fledged idolatry, and so this provision of the curse kicks in. There's going to be no rain. Now, after pronouncing this message, the Lord tells Elijah, leave, get away, go, sit by the brook Cherith, and I will provide for you there. And then shortly after, the Lord sends him on to Sidon. It looks like Elijah's running away. It looks like, many people have read it that way. Many people have said, well, he must be intimidated by Ahab or uh, Jezebel, and he needs to get out of there. Or maybe he's just exhausted uh, from delivering that message. Well, later on, uh, it's evident after the deal with the, with the prophets of Baal, it looks like he has some exhaustion there. But here, Elijah's not running and he's not hiding. He isn't depressed. He's not scared of anything. And he's not scared of anyone at this point. He doesn't find out till much later that Ahab is looking for him. And uh, that comes uh, after his word comes true and the rain has stopped. Initially though, Ahab probably thinks he's just nuts. And the prophets of Baal are just laughing at him. Who do you think you are? They can't believe the audacity and they're not gonna chase a crazy man. They're just relieved that he's gone. Now their attitude is gonna change when it hasn't rained for a year, but we're not there yet. So why does Elijah leave? Why does he run away? I mean, and run away, and I'm saying that pejoratively. He does, the Lord tells him to get out of there. Why does Elijah depart is a better way to ask the question. Elijah departs because the land is under judgment. The land is about to undergo a drought of rain and a famine of food because if you don't have any rain, you don't have any crops, you don't have any animals, everything dies. But there is a much worse threat looming. By leaving, Elijah is showing that there is about to be a drought of the word of the Lord. There is a famine of spiritual food. Elijah's not acting simply as an individual believer here. He is the representative and the messenger of Yahweh. Elijah is bearing the presence and the word of the Lord. And so when the prophet leaves the land, it's highly symbolic. God's word has been ignored, so God's word is leaving the land. And this is not the first time in the Bible that this has happened. In 1 Samuel, um, when the people are consumed with corruption and the priesthood is consumed with corruption, the ark leaves the land and the ark of God, the presence of God goes and hangs out with the Philistines for a while. And then later in the gospels, when Jesus left the temple after turning over the tables and he declared it a den of revolutionaries, Jesus left the temple desolate and bankrupt. So now Elijah leaves Israel the same way and his leaving is a prophetic statement about God's word departing from 
this land. But this is not a retreat. Um, Yahweh never retreats. His word never fails. God is never frustrated in his purposes. God never has to regroup and reconsider his plans. God never has too little to work with. His word is always moving forward. No matter how it looks to us, no matter how poor the human response, if God's word is rejected in the kingdom of Israel, then he finds a place to be heard in Sidon. If his word is ignored or despised among the Jews, it's going to be welcomed among the Gentiles. If the Lord Jesus Christ is rejected in Raleigh and New York and Chicago, then the word is going to be preached in Peru and Poland and Myanmar. The word is going to find an audience. The Lord's plans and his purposes are never thwarted. He will grow his kingdom. The gospel will go out and he will gather his people. And so that's why Elijah leaves, to demonstrate the totality of Israel's judgment and to carry the word out to the land of the Gentiles. Now, he first spends some time by a brook, which was probably one of those dry valleys in this part of the world where during the rainy season, they become rivers, but during the dry season, they're just very dry, uh, very dry ditches. And when Elijah gets there, it's still flowing because it's rained recently, but before long it dries up because the rains have stopped. And this brook, we read, twice feeds into the Jordan River. So if this brook is drying up, that means the Jordan River downstream is drying up as well. Now, while, while Elijah is here, he's fed by ravens. He gets bread from heaven. Well, we've seen that before, haven't we? We've seen bread come from heaven, and now Elijah gets bread in the morning and bread in the evening. Ravens are unclean birds, and we don't know where this raven is getting this bread, and we don't know where he's getting the meat either. Perhaps the meat was picked off of dead animals. That's what ravens do. What I do know is that it wasn't like this perfectly wrapped McDonald's cheeseburger that the raven was bringing him. It wasn't even a McRib, um, which is the happiest season of the year when the McRib comes around. But this was unclean food. Maybe you think the McRib is unclean food and you need to be cleansed and you're ceremonially unclean. But if you eat, if you eat meat from dead things, if you eat meat from things that die of their, uh, by themselves, um, if, if the raven is, is taking meat from, uh, if he's scavenging it um, under, under God's law, if you eat meat from a beast that has been torn, you are ceremonially unclean. Now, it doesn't mean you're sinning. This is always something we gotta keep straight ceremonially unclean just means that in order to be brought back into the fellowship and the life of God's people, you have to offer a sacrifice, you have to be purified, and then you enter into the presence. Just like we do every Lord's Day. We come into the Lord's Day ceremonially unclean. We need to repent of our sins and be cleansed, and then we're okay, we're fine. Uh, this was a picture of that so that there were these things that made you unclean, but you enter in uh, through purification and you're back in, you're back in fellowship. You bring an offering. Well, Elijah doesn't have to worry about eating unclean bread from an unclean animal because he's already living among the Gentiles. He's already voluntarily cut off from the life of Israel. Ezekiel ate unclean bread for the very same reason because Ezekiel was in exile. And if, if Ezekiel's in exile and Elijah's in exile, it means Yahweh himself is out there exiled from his people. So Elijah's in exile, yet the Lord still provides for him. Elijah's not cut off from the Lord's blessing. Israel now, in this phase of history, has become a new Egypt. 
And that means Elijah is a new Moses. Elijah has confronted his Pharaoh. He has gone out into the wilderness where God makes a new garden for him, where God gives him water. God gives him bread from the heavens. God gives him meat as well, just as God gave his people quail in the wilderness. So much quail, the word says, it came out their nose. He gave them that much quail. Those who make Baal their God are about to get very hungry and very thirsty, but the servant of Yahweh is fed and he's watered. So let's read the rest of this chapter and see what happens. And I want, I want you to think as we read through this, what is going on as Elijah goes out to this, to this widow? Let's pick up in verse eight. Then the word of Yahweh came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, as Yahweh your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says Yahweh God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day Yahweh sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Elijah." Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to Yahweh and said, oh Yahweh, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow? with whom I, I lodge by killing her son. And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then Yahweh heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is the truth. Well, the river runs dry. What does that mean? If the river runs dry, it means the rain has stopped, uh, just as Elijah said. So then after the brook runs dry, Yahweh sends Elijah onto Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. What's interesting about that is that Sidon is where Jezebel is from. Jezebel is about to carry out this systematic execution of the prophets of Yahweh, but Elijah's safe in her hometown, which would be the last place she would look. Nobody's hiding out in Sidon. And not only that, but Elijah and the Lord are mocking Jezebel by making converts in her hometown. It's pretty funny. So when Elijah gets to Zarephath, he meets a widow and he asks her for a cup of water. Where well, you gotta find water. Well, you gotta, you gotta leave Israel to go find water. There's no, there's no water in Israel. 
because they're worshiping idols. So he goes out here and he meets this widow and he says, I need some water. Just as Isaac's servant went out, remember, and met uh, Rebecca drawing water, he asked her for a drink and she waters his animals too. Jacob leaves his house and he goes, goes and meets Rachel at a well where she's watering her sheep. Moses leaves Egypt and he goes out and he meets Zipporah at a well. Uh, Jesus leaves Judea and he goes out to the land of Samaria and he meets a woman at a well. What is going, men go out in the wilderness and they find women at the well and women give them water. What is going on? Elijah is living out this motif. He's living out this story symbolically because he is going to be a husband to this woman, a, a husband in the symbolic sense, a husband in the way that Jesus comes to husband Israel. Elijah comes to husband, protect, provide, care for this woman who is a Gentile rather than uh, going to be a husband to Israel. Yahweh desires to be a husband to Israel, but Israel's committing spiritual adultery. Israel is pursuing other gods, other husbands. She provokes Yahweh with her idols. She pays attention to other gods, and so Yahweh is going to pay attention to other nations. Yahweh looks to other nations with his favor, and so Elijah is embodying the husbandhood of Yahweh as he goes out to Sidon to care for this widow and her son. He's a representative of Yahweh. She's a representative of the nations. Remember what Jesus says. He comments on Elijah in Luke's gospel. And Jesus says, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, but to none of them was Elijah sent, but to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. That's what Jesus says. So it's very deliberate that there are plenty of widows in Israel, but Elijah's not sent to any of them. Elijah's sent out to a specific widow to show God's desire to be this kind of husband to Israel, and yet she's rejecting him as her husband. This widow's heart had been prepared to receive Elijah. Remember that good King Hiram of Tyre and Sidon, good King Hiram was a friend of David and he was a friend of Solomon. He helped build the temple. And so this countryside had been exposed to God's law and to God's covenant. This woman in particular had been commanded by Yahweh to respond to Elijah and to obey him. So the Holy Spirit's already been working on her before Elijah shows up, but she still needs some leading and some direction and her faith is weak when he comes. When Elijah asks her for bread, so he asks her for water, and then he asks her for bread, she says, I only have enough for me and my son. I'm just gonna make a little loaf out of what I've got left, and then that's gonna be it, and we're gonna die of starvation because that's all the food we have. She was prepared for that to be her last meal, but she is in for an incredible blessing because Yahweh provides for his servants when they're in exile. And when they're in the wilderness, as Elijah is now, he gives his people manna that doesn't run out. And he's gonna give this woman flour and oil that will last all the way through the drought. Uh, just enough for the day. You know, you only pick up enough manna for the day. And every day she goes to her flour jar every morning to get just enough for the day. And when she goes back the next day, it's just as full as it was the day before because he's providing for 
his people. And so Elijah says, bring me a biscuit first and then go back and make some for your son. And so she gives to Elijah, she gives to the man of God, the first fruits, uh, which is giving it to Yahweh. And then uh, she's, she's getting that provision out of her faithfulness. So wherever Elijah goes, there's provision and there's blessing and there's life abundantly because he's the bearer of the word of God and he's the bearer of the presence of the creator. And this is all a contrast to Baal. Baal can't make these things happen. Baal doesn't do miracles. Baal doesn't replenish oil and bread and he doesn't cause the skies to dry up. In Baal worship, you carry out your dance, you do your ritual, and if you did everything right, you can look out the window and say, maybe it's raining a little bit harder today than it was yesterday. That's about all you can hope for. Maybe, maybe we did something right. But there are no miracles in Baalism, and there's no way that they can explain miracles. It's a very mechanistic view of the cosmos. And yet, in contrast to that, Yahweh feeds the widow, and he feeds her son with uninterrupted provision in the middle of a drought. He feeds them. And if, it, if that wasn't enough for a sign, the Lord restores the life of her dead son. So after Elijah's lived there for a while, the boy gets sick and he dies. The widow is distraught with grief. Her only boy, her future, her protector, her provider, her only descendant. She's expecting him to grow up and work and provide for her in her old age, but he's gone. No children means no future. So she blames Elijah. Have you come here to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? No, that's not at all what's going on. Here's another opportunity for Yahweh to demonstrate his power over death. So Elijah prays and he stretches himself out over the boy three times. Three is a number often associated with resurrection. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus was in the heart of the earth for three nights. So three is a number associated with resurrection. He stretches himself out of the boy three times and he prays again that the Lord would revive the boy. God hears his prayer. The boy sits up. Elijah brings it back to his mother and he says, see, your son lives. And in response to this, the woman expresses her faith in Yahweh and his word. Here again, Elijah is living out the lives of the patriarchs. He's living out Moses' story. He goes out into the exile. He goes out into the wilderness and he gives a woman a son. He isn't married to this woman, obviously. The son isn't his own. The boy's already there when he shows up. But symbolically, she is just as barren as the wives of the patriarchs. She has no husband and her only son is dead. She has no future. She has only death. And Elijah steps into the scene and he brings bread and he brings oil and he brings life. He gives her a future and he gives her hope in, in that future and all that provision. So Yahweh, through Elijah, Yahweh has proven himself greater and more faithful than Baal. Yahweh is Lord of the wilderness. His servant isn't going to starve by the river. He can cause the ravens to bring him food if necessary. Yahweh is also Lord over the Gentile lands. He's not hindered by territorial lines and national boundaries. And above all, we find that Yahweh is also Lord over the grave. 
he can bring the dead to life. If only Ahab and Israel would listen, they too would have Yahweh as their protector and provider and deliverer. They would have Yahweh as their husband, as Elijah is husbanding this this widow. Instead, they just want to wallow in their ignorance and their Baal worship. So just as Yahweh pursues his servants to bless them and to do them good, just as he pursues Elijah to the wilderness, to Zarephath, even pursues the boy to the grave, just as Yahweh displays this relentless persistence to do good for Elijah and the widow and her son, he is just as committed to the people of Israel. He's just as committed to them. The Lord is steadfast. He's loyal He's faithful to his promises. Everything he does with Elijah and through Elijah here, he's gonna do later with Jesus. Jesus is gonna enter the wilderness. Jesus crosses national boundaries. Jesus crosses the river. Jesus goes to Samaria. He goes to the land of the Gentiles. He even crosses the boundary of the grave in pursuit of his people. He doesn't wait for things to fix themselves. Jesus doesn't camp out in Nazareth and hope that somebody just shows up and comes to him and, and, and gets the word of life. He goes and he confronts the demons and he confronts the idolaters and he confronts the Pharisees. He confronts the liars and he pursues his people with his love. This is very comforting to us, should be, that I'm sure everyone here has a friend or a family member who's been baptized, who has been discipled. They've heard the word of God. They have heard what is right and what is wrong. And they've enjoyed some of the blessings of the covenant, but they've turned their back on the Lord and they're going after other gods right now. They're calloused and they're rebellious and they're hard-hearted. And here's what we can see. Know that the Lord is relentless to keep his promises to them. Even if they presently aren't committed to keeping their promises to him, he is pursuing them. The Lord Jesus Christ is in pursuit. And sometimes that means withholding blessing. Sometimes that means withholding the rain. Sometimes it means withholding his word. But know that the Lord has not abandoned them. And if they fail to respond with faithfulness, And if they fail to respond to the love of the Lord, they're without excuse. He has pursued. He has initiated. He has taken the initiative. Last week, we observed some of the, uh, week before last, we observed some of the similarities between Elijah's day and our own day. Israel was acting like a post-Yahweh nation. We're quickly becoming a post-Christian nation. And so the question for us is, how do we be faithful? What do we need to do and what do we need to think as we live in the ruins of former blessing and glory. What kind of perspective do we get from Elijah's story and the similarities there? Just a couple of quick observations. First of all, this is one of the very many places in the Bible which demonstrate obedience to God is going to bring you into conflict with idolaters and the wicked. If you are faithful to God, it will bring you into conflict with idolaters. You are going to soon be in a place, if you're not already, you're going to be in a place where if you aren't being called names, you aren't being faithful. You're going to be called names like bigot and uh, un-American and transphobic and homophobic. They come up with these words painting you as if you're fearful. I'm not fearful. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of anything you can do. I love you and I want you to live 
in a way that's reconciled to your creator and, and the way you were created, but I'm not afraid of you. But see, they paint the, uh, they, they, uh, they, they claim the battlefield and they, they paint the picture and they call you what they call you, but the names that you get called don't have to be true and they don't have to reflect reality, but that doesn't matter because the people we're dealing with don't care about reality. They don't care about living in the real world. They're in La La Land. Their, their train left the reality station a long time ago, and they're living, living in fantasy world. And confrontation of the wicked and their wickedness is going to bring you into conflict with them. It's going to be a conflict between reality and fantasy world. And, and if you are faithful, you are going to have enemies. If you doubt me, you haven't read the Psalms and you haven't read the Gospels and you haven't read the life of the apostles. If you are faithful to the Lord Jesus and despise idols, not everyone is going to like you and you're going to have to be okay with that. You're going to have to be able to lay down your head at night and sleep peacefully knowing that somebody out there hates you severely and that's gonna be okay because they hated Jesus and they hated the apostles and the, the, the reformers were all hated. And it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay with you because you don't care about pleasing them. You care more about pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ than you do about making them happy and pleasing them and being accepted by them. And that is going to mean there are gonna be times where you're gonna feel very isolated. You're gonna think, am I the only one? Am I the only faithful one? Well, Elijah's gonna ask that question before too long. We're gonna to get to that question. He says, am I the only one left, Lord? And the answer was no, you're not the only one left. Uh, there are other prophets. But there's been times in the last couple of years where, where you've been in an environment or you've been in a place and you've looked around and you've said, I think I'm the only person here who has any critical thinking skills. I think, I think I'm the only person here who's actually living in reality. And... Uh, if you ask that question, the answer is yes, you are. You are the only person probably in that environment, not the only person in the world, but maybe in that environment. And so you have to be ready to put up with that and ready to put up with false accusations. If you oppose idolatry and you say that Jesus is king, you're gonna be treated like you are the problem. We were all fine until you came along and messed everything up. Uh, when, when Elijah finally meets Ahab later, Ahab calls Elijah, oh, you, Troubler of Israel. Elijah's the troubler of, of Israel. Elijah's the one who's the problem here. No, you talk about projection. Ahab is the troubler of Israel. Elijah is coming to reform Israel. And yet Elijah is the problem. Uh, Elijah was falsely accused. And know that when you're falsely accused, when you feel isolated, when you feel hated, and you are hated, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus was isolated, Jesus was hated, Jesus was accused and called names. Uh, the apostle Paul was falsely accused, and, and everyone who's faithful has been through this. When, when God calls you, as he's called us, to live in a time like this, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to break the news to you. If you haven't figured it out, we have not been called to live in the golden age of Christendom. I, have you got that yet? Have you figured that out? This is not the great golden age of Christendom yet. We are living right now and our children are gonna be raised in the ruins of a once great civilization. Uh, un until and unless God miraculously changes things and he can do that overnight. But for right now, we're living in conflict and you are going to have conflict and you have to be okay with that. You have to accept that. Just embrace that. The sooner you embrace that, the sooner you'll be ready 
to fight. So that's the first thing. This is, these are some parallels here. And secondly, very quickly, God always provides for his people in the midst of tribulation. Elijah didn't go hungry. He didn't go thirsty. The woman, the widow ate. Her son was revived. Uh, later we find out there are a hundred other prophets hiding in the caves and they're provided for as well. God provides for his people in times like this. And then very lastly, and, and, and finally, if you're going to take the initiative to boldly oppose idolatry, if you are going to be the person who takes the initiative to confront wickedness, you must first kill the idols and topple the idols in your head and in your heart. There are some people who love confrontation just by matter of, it's just fun. It's their spiritual gift. Conflict is their spiritual <laughs> gift. They love conflict, but they haven't tackled their own idols. They haven't knocked over the idols in their own heart. And so that makes them hypocrites. And that makes them very foolish and, and, and obviously unable to adequately uh, do, this, do this work. They have blind spots. They have work that they must do themselves. And so the first idols to knock over are the ones in your own head and in your own heart. The wickedness that first must be conquered is in you. I am like the land of Israel at this time. I've got little, little, little shrines in me and in my head and in my heart. And I must first knock those over before I can be an Elijah. I need to be first uh, purged of idolatry. When we read these uh, stories, we tend to put ourselves in the place of the hero. We wanna be the Elijah. And that's, that's good, I, I do. There are ways that I really want to be like Elijah. But on the first reading of this, we need to first understand, um, I'm, I'm more like Ahab in some ways. I erect idols. I go after other, other gods, and I must first be corrected. How am I like Ahab? And then how am I like the widow, helpless? I need, I need to be fed. I don't have enough provision. I can't sustain my own life. I don't have enough, I don't have enough bread left to make a cake. I don't have enough flour left to make a, 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 a biscuit. I, I've got nothing left. I need to be fed. How am I like the sun? I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I need to be revived. Right? So, so when we read these stories, the primary, the primary reading, the first reading is that Jesus is our Elijah. Jesus is the greater Elijah who comes and conquers the idols, who exposes the wickedness, who topples the Ahabs. He's the one who comes and feeds the widow and the helpless. He's the one who gives life to the dead. Jesus is our Elijah. He has initiated, he has picked a fight with our idols and with the demons and with sin. He comes to us. He comes to correct and to fix and to repair and revive and to feed and sustain. And it is our duty to receive him and obey him. He is our greater Elijah. We'll continue the study next week for now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending us your son, our greater Elijah, who has come to feed us and has come to give us life. And so, Father, we ask you to humble our hearts and cause us to receive him today and to knock over every idol and to stamp out all traces of wickedness and rebellion against you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.